0: And executed tonight. I go over a few events that have happened recently. There are the Kloss murders, the Toya accordingly murder, and an execution plus more. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, well, we've had three full episodes in a row, and so tonight we need to catch up on some of the shit going down around us. Before I start, for those who skip the end of the show, there will be a meetup in Melbourne, so stay tuned until the end for more info. First up, we have the baffling mystery of the murder of 24-year-old Toya Cordingly who had been reported missing on the night of October 21 by her family after going for a walk with her dog at Wangetti Beach, north of Cairns. Toya from Cairns had been found about 800 metres from the car park where her car was found. Reports are that she'd sustained visible violent injuries before her death in what police believe was a sexually motivated attack. Her dog had been found tied up near her body. Also, shockingly, it was her father that was part of the group of searchers that found her body. Now, police are asking for anyone who may have seen her on the day of her disappearance or saw anyone acting strange to come forward with any information they may have including photos and dash cam footage along the Captain Cook Highway. Now, that was the 21st of October. Now, on the 21st, Toya was at Rusty's Market in Cairns between 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. She's then seen getting into her blue Mitsubishi Lancer and was spotted driving north towards Wangetti Beach. It's reported she went missing around 2 p.m., now I don't know exactly how they worked it out. Maybe that was from her phone records. Police uh, police established a crime scene and forensic experts search for any evidence they could. Many locals have volunteered DNA so as help police eliminate potential suspects. Police have identified potential witnesses they would like to speak with. Now they say there was a family that was picnicking on Wangetti Beach around the same time Toya was murdered. From what I've read, Toya was much loved and she loved animals so much she had formerly worked as a kennel attendant at Paws and Claws Refuge and Boarding Centre, Port Douglas. Her funeral was held in Cairns on Friday the 2nd of November. Such a sad thing to happen and from... Other things I've read, there have been hundreds of calls to police so far. So please, if you have any information that you think may help, or you were in the Wangetti Beach area on Sunday, the 21st of October, or were driving along the Captain Cook Highway and have dash cam footage, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1300 333 000. Something you may know, or a photo, or any of your dashcam footage may be what police need to crack this case. Now, next. A shocking and senseless murder happened in Noarlunga at the Collinards shopping centre in South Australia. A 36 year old Ethelton woman was assaulted just before 12 15 am on Thursday, October 25. Police did arrest a 20-year-old homeless man shortly after. Now this is mainly from news.com.au. Chris Graham, 43 of Christy Downs, was on his bicycle and had planned to withdraw cash from the Bank South Australia ATM at the shopping centre when he saw the woman lying face down. He says, At first I didn't know if it was a man or a woman or if it was a setup." When I saw the blood, I realised it was pretty serious. I rolled her over and tried to stop the bleeding, but it was of no use really. Now Mr Graham, he administered CPR after calling the ambulance and police and he said, I'm sorry I couldn't do more. I've got a child myself and I couldn't contemplate that happening to her. I thought, if I'd been here 15 minutes earlier, but I can't think like that. Now when asked about his heroic actions, he said, anyone could have done it, I did what I could. It's just wrong place, wrong time. Chris said the victim was lying in a big pool of blood and her head injuries were horrific to the point that her face was unrecognisable. When officers arrived shortly after, they used uh, Chris's shirt to stop the bleeding while the Good Samaritan continued chest compressions. Chris also said, I find it hard to believe the alleged murderer and victim are not related in any way with the hate and anger that caused that sort of injury. When police brought him in handcuffs, he was quite calm and subdued. It was surreal, really. It's sad someone had so little respect for someone's life. And he described the attack as gutless. The alleged murderer faced Adelaide Magistrate's Court just before 4pm on Thursday and he was still dressed in a white forensic jumpsuit. He showed no reaction as his lawyer told the court there would be no application for bail and so rightly. South Australia Police sought and were granted suppression orders over the identities of both the man and his alleged victim. They told the court investigators needed time to locate and speak to potential witnesses in isolation, without influence from news reports or social media posts. They said those investigations would help discern the movements of both the alleged murderer and victim before the incident. However, upon application by the advertiser, the length of those orders was narrowed to 28 days, so... Uh, In about a month's time, I guess I will uh, bring us up to speed on this. Magistrate Greg Fisher remanded the man in custody to face court again in March 2019. Detective Chief Inspector Scott Fitzgerald said the victim's head injuries were quite severe and significant, but that no weapons were used. He said, this murder of a mother is shocking and tragic. Our thoughts are with the family. This is a tragedy where a mother of two was murdered in our community. We're currently looking at the motive. However, at this stage, both parties are not known to each other and we're not certain of what the motive is. The investigation is continuing and police ask anyone who is in the vicinity of the colonnades around 12.15am on Thursday, October the 25th, that is the early morning of Thursday, October the 25th, or I guess late on the Wednesday night. Anyone who has any information that may assist the investigation to contact Crime Stoppers on one eight hundred triple three triple zero 0 or online at www.crimestopperssa.com.au. Okay, now a quick one for the islanders residing in the US and in particular Wisconsin. A 13-year-old girl, Jamie Kloss, has been missing since her parents were both found shot dead at their home in Barron. Police responded to a 911 call early Monday, 12.53am on the 15th of October and were at the Kloss home within minutes where they found 56-year-old James Kloss and his wife, 46-year-old Denise Kloss, dead from gunshot wounds. Jamie was also missing. Police have ruled out Jamie being involved with the shooting. Shortly after 12.30am on October the 15th, neighbours heard gunshots coming from the Kloss home, but as it is a semi-rural area, there are always gunshots going off, so they dismissed them. It's believed the call was made from Denise Kloss's phone, and when police arrived, they found the front door kicked in. No one spoke to the dispatchers during the call, but yelling could be heard in the background before the call was disconnected. Calls back to the phone were unanswered. Police believe James Kloss answered the door and was shot multiple times and then the killers turned on Denise and shot her multiple times. Investigators are looking for a red or orange Dodge Challenger and a black Ford Edge or black Acura MDX that may have been travelling near the Kloss family's home on the night. Police and hundreds of volunteers have been searching for Jamie without success and they have now scaled back the search for the missing teenager. Anyone with information on Jamie's whereabouts is being asked to call one. 1- eight five five seven four four three eight seven nine that's one eight five five seven four four three eight seven nine or email at Jamie that's J A Y M E T I P S at Code Baron dot Jamie is described as being five feet tall A £100 with green eyes and blonde or strawberry blonde hair. A $50,000 reward is being offered for information that leads to Jamie. Now, I know a lot of other true crime shows have covered this ongoing story. So maybe, well, hopefully someone, one of our listeners may be able to help. I think I heard Mike from Crime Sphere say that they think that during the 911 call, they could hear the word help. So let's hope at least Jamie can be found alive. Next, and I guess this is going to be a mini episode, so here we go. It's 1983, Edmund Zakorsky arrives in Hickman County and when I say he arrives, Zakorsky, apparently, according to him, he didn't drive, catch a bus or a train, He parachuted from an aeroplane into the rugged hills of eastern Humphreys County where he made his way to Diamond Jim Blackwell's place near Bucksnort. He'd worked with Diamond Jim previously and told him that he was on his way back to El Salvador where he was serving as a mercenary. Zagorski mentioned to Diamond Jim, that he was in Hickman County to purchase hunting weapons which he could sell when he got back to El Salvador. Zagorski said that he could get $2,000 for one good semi-automatic rifle and 200 rounds of ammo. Zagorski was living in the woods near the Lakeland Trout Farm and he was organising an airdrop of 100 pounds or about 50 kilos of marijuana to sell to a couple of locals. Now these locals were Jimmy Porter, thirty-five, owner of the East Side Tavern in Dixon, and Dale Dotson, twenty-eight, a timber cutter from McEwen. Zagorski told Porter and Dotson that he could supply the hundred pounds of marijuana for thirty thousand dollars, and that it was an opportunity for them to make a shitload of money. On April the twenty third, nineteen eighty three, Zagorski arranged to meet Porter and Dotson at the Trout Farm around six p.m., where they would drive in Porter's red Datsun pickup to the forest, where they would hike and pick up the airdrop marijuana. <laughs> would you believe this story? I don't know. Airdrop marijuana. Anyway, they drive out to the forest which is near Mile Marker 112 Interstate 65 in Robertson County. You can find that on Google Google Street View. They park the pickup a short distance off the road and then hike into the forest near South Fork Red River where Zagorski tells them the marijuana has been airdropped. Here Zagorski shoots and kills Porter and Dixon. He then takes the 30000 and drives off in Porter's pickup, leaving their bodies by the creek bed. Zagorski then drives towards Ohio, where he stayed with a guy called Steve Boggs. It's here that he stashes the rifle that he used to kill Porter and Dotson, while they have been reported missing by their loved ones. Police mount a search and finally, on May the 6th, Porter and Dotson's decomposed bodies are found near the creek bed at South Fork Red River. Now, that's near Cross Plains for those who may know the area. Autopsies showed that both men were shot with a high-powered rifle in the midsection and both of their throats had been cut. So, pretty gruesome. As you know, he could have just shot and killed them, but obviously he wanted to use a knife and cut their throats as well. So, Shell casings and a knife a knife scabbard were found at the crime scene. Now, only, not only were relatives and police looking for the missing men before, obviously, they were found, but also a couple of local businessmen and several members of the Nashville-based motorcycle gang, the Grim Reapers. They're, everyone's looking for them. Police found that when they conducted interviews with certain people, They came across as knowing more than they were letting on. So it looks like the 30 grand that Porter and Dotson raised to make the drug deal was actually funded by these businessmen, in air quotes if you can see, and the bikey gang. They had started looking for Porter and Dotson two days earlier than when they were reported missing by their families. Eventually, Zagorski was recognized by a patrolman on the 26th of May where he was arrested after a shootout with Skioto County Sheriff Deputies. I'm, I think that's how you pronounce it. Scioto. Estill Hall, a volunteer Scioto County deputy, was shot in the standoff and Zagorski took a bullet to the head and arm. Both men recovered in hospital and Zagorski was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated attempted murder of a police officer. When questioned by detectives, Zagorski told them he was just a middleman and that he'd set up a drug deal between Porter, Dotson and these mercenary associates he had. He went on to say that he... Porter, Dotson and the two other mercen- mercenaries met up in Bucksnort <laughs> what a name Bucksnort and drove off in three cars towards Kentucky. Zagorski said the two other mercenaries took his rifle an HK91 308 semi-automatic and walked into the woods with Porter and Dotson. He was ordered by the mercenary mercenaries to go to the welcome center at Kentucky and wait. When the mercenaries arrived at the Welcome Centre, they gave him $5,000, his rifle and Dotson's red pickup truck. Zagorski then said he drove into southern Ohio where he was eventually arrested after a shootout. Although detectives thought he was full of shit, they did investigate whether or not the mercenaries existed, but as Zagorsky wouldn't divulge their names, they dismissed the story relatively quickly. Shell casings found at the murder site were found to have been fired by Zagorski's rifle. On July 17, 1983, Zagorski offered a full confession to the murders of Porter and Dotson on condition that he could dictate the terms and date of his execution, as the death penalty was mandatory for a capital murder conviction in Tennessee at the time. There were no defense witnesses and no evidence presented by Zikorsky's lawyers during the penalty phase of his trial and the jury delivered a guilty verdict. Sikorsky was convicted of murdering Dotson and Porter on March 2, 1984 and on March 27, 1984, he was sentenced to death by electrocution. So, why am I bringing you this case in brief this week? Well, I'll tell you. On Thursday, November the 1st, 2018, at the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution in Nashville, after all his appeals had been heard and several delays, Edmund Zagorski was executed in the electric chair, as was his preference over a lethal injection. He was pronounced dead at 7.26pm. Zagorski ate a final meal, apparently, of pickled ham, hock and pig tail. Now, that was just over 34 years and 7 months after he was sentenced to death. He was just over 29 years of age when he was convicted. So he spent more of his life on death row than off it. And, fuck, well, as for Porter and Dotson, they were really sucked in by Zagorski's bullshit story about mercenaries, Parachuting into the county and getting airdrops to marijuana marijuana. It takes it takes a special kind of stupid to believe that sort of story. But then again, greed will do that to people. And also, Zagorski might have gotten away with it if he just ditched Porter's pickup, the rifle, and then actually become a mercenary in El Salvador. I don't know. Anyway. Now, this is one of the strangest stories of the week. It's not funny at all, but i just bring this. This has happened up the road. Police have arrested a 102-year-old man at an aged care facility, or as we know them as old folks' homes, in the affluent eastern suburbs of Sydney, uh, the suburb of Waverley. They handcuffed him and took him downtown to Waverley Police Station after allegedly assaulting a 94-year-old resident at the same home on October the 23rd. He was charged with aggravated indecent assault. He was granted conditional bail to appear at Waverley local court on November the 20th. Now, you just can't make this shit up. As I said, I'm not trying to be funny, as I'm sure the victim has suffered immensely, but 102 years old. You think by that age, you wouldn't be doing that sort of thing. And how is there going to be any justice in there? I mean, where is he living now? He's on bail. I don't know. I really don't. I, I really don't know. That's just 102 years old. Anyway, finally, finally, I put up a poll on the Island Facebook page on whether or not you thought Kathleen Forbig was guilty, not guilty, or if you were unsure. Well, I can tell you at the time of recording the podca- podcast tonight, the results are in: 72 guilty. Eight, unsure and three, not guilty. So this is going to be a really interesting next few months, whether or not she will get a new trial and if she does get a new trial, if she is found to be not guilty. I think if she is found not guilty, it may be a case of not so much she's innocent, but isn't guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I, honestly, I don't think it's a case like Lindy Chamberlain and the death of her daughter Azaria. You know the dingo's got my baby, lady. Yeah, look, it wasn't the same as her case. Look, Lindy was found to be an exemplary mother. She had no mental illness. She was never violent with her children. She'd been given. She had given no indication of being irritated with Azaria, and she gave no indication of being stressed when she took Azaria and indicated that she was putting it to bed. That seems to be the total opposite to Kathleen. Now, Lindy was really hammered in the press at the time as well. Her hubby, Michael, they were Seventh-day Adventists. And back in the day, people saw them as basically fucking weirdos. And there was even reports that Azaria meant sacrifice. I mean, fuck's sake, back in the 80s, most people were Catholic or Church of England, which is called Anglican now. There'd be a few Baptists and Presbyterians thrown around. So this offshoot of the main Protestant religion, the Seventh-day Adventists, was relatively mysterious. (laughs) At least they didn't wake you up knocking on your door on a Saturday morning like the Joeys did. So Lindy, after being convicted, got let off. And maybe that's not the right word. She was found not guilty of the murder of her baby Azaria. Also, we've got the Kelly Lane thing going on at the moment as well, which I won't go into right now, but she was convicted of the 1996 murder of her newborn baby, Teagan, and three counts of lying under oath. Now, she's trying to get out as well, saying that she's innocent, so I'll have to maybe do both of those cases coming up. And I will keep you up to date on Kathleen Folbig. If she is innocent, what an awful life she has lived. So, that's about it for tonight. Just before we get to the end of the show, for the Toya Corningley murder, if you have any information that you think may help or you were in the Wangetti Beach area on Sunday the 21st of October or were driving along the Captain Cook Highway and have dashcam footage, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1300 333 0. Something you may know, or a photo or dash cam footage, may be what police need to crack that case. And finally, anyone with information on James Jamie's whereabouts is being asked to call 1 855 744 3879 or email at jamie tips, which is J A Y M E T I P S, at u s. Jamie is described as being 5 foot tall, 100 pounds, with green eyes and blonde or strawberry blonde hair. And don't forget, a $50,000 reward is being offered for information that leads to Jamie. Jamie so that's the end of the show it's time for the patreon shout outs and this week i would like to shout out to gracie bosch who just only moments ago became an island patron thank you so much gracie also we had lauren mccoy thank you so much lauren and a big shout out to all the past and present patreons remember all funds go directly back to the island it is a one-man operation here and it really does help a lot I really do appreciate appreciate it. I will be posting out this month's rewards this week. If you're interested for only a dollar a month, you can join the island at patreon.com forward slash true crime island. But if you want to make a one-off donation, there is paypal.me forward slash true crime island as well. Don't forget we keep True Crime Island commercial free for us all. Because as you know, we don't want to hear ads. Merch is at truecrimeisland.threadless.com for t-shirt, mugs of rage and all that sort of stuff. Plus, if you want koozies, keychains, stickers or lapel pins, email me for anything, cambo at truecrimeisland.com so I can sort you out according to what you want and where you live. There are links to everything at truecrimeisland.com. So, you can also support the show by rating and reviewing... And probably the best way to support the show is to share the love. Islanders, if you all try to share with one person a week, that would be absolutely fantastic. If you know people who don't know about the wide world of podcasts, grab their phone and help them out. Also, if you join the closed Facebook group, just search for True Crime Island, one of our talented mods, or myself, will check, check, check you out. I'll check you out, all right, let you in. Thanks to Senga, Jason, Erica, and Susan. There's Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at True Crime Island. Uh, Is it the handle? I, I feel like I'm a trucker with a CB, you know. There's my handle at True Crime Island. Anyway, there is a meetup on Saturday, the 17th of November at the Retreat Hotel in Brunswick, Melbourne. So if you want to catch up with Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder, Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast. And Rod from Felon plus me, come on down from 2.30pm at Saturday the 17th of November, the Retreat Hotel in Brunswick. I do know that Angela is flying down from Sydney to be there. Last year it was a great day and I will bring an ultra-exclusive TCI Slasher T-shirt to give away and stickers and all that sort of stuff. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. Thanks to Tara, who's done all the organising. Boom, Tara. I have two promos this week. First up is a newish podcast called Murderific. Executing podcasts, one crime at a time. Bernadette is a girl in the scary state of Maine with a love of true crime. Serial killers, mass murderers, family annihilations, the missing and unsolved cases. Check it out. They have about 12 episodes or so now. Second up is a new one from my friend from Detroit, Nina, called Don't Talk to Strangers. That is a long-form podcast, and this first season will look at the 1976 and 77 child murders in the metro Detroit area. Nina does already gone past podcasts as well, and she does an amaz- amazing work, so check it out. Well, that's about all for tonight, and lots of love to Maggie James, so this has been Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, fuck Welcome to the Murderific True Crime Podcast, hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, the millicide, the missing, and unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then, we will be executing podcasts, one crime at a time. From January 1st, 1976, through the end of March, 1977, the metro Detroit area was the site of nine child murders. Three of those cases are resolved, but the other six cases remain open, with most of these deaths attributed to the as-yet-unidentified Oakland County child killer. Don't Talk to Strangers is a long-form podcast focused on this series of unresolved child murders. Join us as we explore the stories of these young victims, the impact on their families and the community, and what happened to the investigation into these crimes. Subscribe to Don't Talk to Strangers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher.